welcome to the Word on Pop Culture podcast. I'm Julian Spivey, the creator, editor, and lead writer of the Word on Pop Culture. Please check us out at thewordonpopculture.com for our movie, television, music, and sports coverage. This podcast is recorded through Spotify for Podcasters and can be found pretty much anywhere you find your podcasts, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and rating wherever you're listening from. And we hope you enjoy this episode. All right, welcome back to the Word on Pop Culture podcast. I'm Julian Spivey, the creator editor and lead writer of the Word on Pop Culture. Uh, Every year we like to do a Best in Pop Culture episode, and that's what we're going to do today. And I will let you know that uh, this is the 100th episode of the Word on Pop Culture podcast. We have made it. It's the end of our fifth season, and we have done 100 episodes, which is hard to believe. And today I'm joined by April Hanson Spivey, frequent contributor both to the website and the podcast, as well as my lovely wife. And I'm also joined by Tyler Glover, also a frequent contributor to the website and this podcast. So thanks, April. Thanks, Tyler. Uh, 100 episodes of the Word on Pop Culture podcast. Woohoo! Yay! Before we get into some of our favorite items of 2023 in pop culture, I'd also like to thank uh, some of the other people who frequently contribute to this podcast, including Eric Fulton and Philip Price, as well as anybody else who has ever appeared on an episode of the Word on Pop Culture podcast. Uh, So if we're going to talk about the biggest and best in pop culture in 2023, the thing that we have to start with was the biggest thing in pop culture. And that's, that's arguable, but there's, there's two things and both of the things we'll talk about, but we're going to start with, since April's involved with us here, we're going to start with Barbie, which is the fantasy comedy film directed by Greta Gerwig uh, from a screenplay that she wrote with her partner, Noah Baumbach. And it stars Margot Robbie as the titular Barbie uh, with a supporting cast of Ryan Gosling as Ken as well as America Ferreira, Kate McKinnon, Issa Rae, Rhea Perlman, Will Ferrell, and others. This film was the biggest movie at the box office this year. It earned over $1.44 billion at the global box office and um, is probably going to be nominated for a lot of awards now that we're entering award season. I know that this April was your favorite movie of the year. I believe it was also your favorite movie of the year, Tyler. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So uh, I enjoyed it quite a bit myself. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie that I've seen this year. So I'll let y'all mostly talk about why you loved it so much. And I may throw some things in there if if I see the need to. Uh, But uh, April, why was Barbie your favorite movie of 2023? I had really high expectations for Barbie. And they honestly, I think... Greta Gerwig in her creation really exceeded my expectations. (laughs) So I think that's part of it. Um, I thought it was a wonderful time, especially in society right now to really have a movie like this, because, you know, I wrote a reflection for the word on pop culture Mm -hmm. website talking about, you know, America Ferrer's speech about the impossibility, or it's basically literally impossible to be a woman. And I just thought there were so many themes in the movie that just uh, pointed out all the things in society that, you know, that are put on women and it's just it was very enlightening but it was also hilarious and it was super pink which was awesome (laughs) so um it was just a great film 
Tyler, what was it about Barbie that most stood out to you? Well, you know, what was so crazy about it is that, you know, because of where we live and because of some of the circles that I've grown up in being where we live in the South, I had heard some of the older women and stuff being like, oh, no, you don't want to take your daughter to see that movie. Like, it's not going to be what you expect. It's not, you know, like the typical Barbie movie. And like, and what was so crazy is I'm just, I'm really defiant anyway. And so I, of course, was going to go and I was going to let my daughters watch it. It was one of those movies where I was like, you know, I was told, oh, you probably shouldn't take your daughter. And when I left the movie, I was like, everybody's daughter should see this movie. Like, you're saying that my daughter shouldn't see it. Like, everybody's daughter should see this movie. And um, and so it was just crazy. And like, and I think that it's like, I didn't know what to expect from it. Like, when I saw that Greta Gerwig was involved in it, I honestly just did not know what to expect. And then when I was hearing from people, it's not what you expect. I kind of went into it like, oh my goodness, what is it going to be? And when I just walked out of it, I just loved every moment of it. Like, it just the production design, the costumes, like Margot Robbie's pitch perfect performance as Barbie. Could She couldn't have done anything different or better. Ryan Gosling's performance was fantastic. America's Ferrera's speech alone should get her an Oscar nomination, in my opinion. That yeah. speech is just so, oh my gosh, it's just so profound. And it's like that speech alone, I feel like everybody should hear, every girl should see that and realize. Because I think that's something that you don't really tell people in life. It's kind of like an understood thing a lot of times, at least when I was growing up. And not like I love that there's more of a dialogue about all these societal pressures you know that wasn't really relevant or well it was always relevant but it wasn't really talked about and I love that it's being talked about but not only that not only the screenplay the performances but even the music I mean it has like one of the best soundtracks like of the year like I wouldn't have been shocked if it was not would have gotten a Grammy nomination for album of the year um the what was I made for song by Billie Eilish was fantastic that was my favorite song out of all of them but even dance the night with by Dua Lipa was fantastic. I mean, it was just literally a movie that I just felt like had absolutely everything that it, it like. And, you know, I actually just saw an interview with Margot Robbie where they were talking about the potential of a Barbie too. And she was like, I feel like we gave it our all in this movie. Like we put everything into it. And I feel like she was 100% correct in that. Like, I don't think it could have been any better. And I don't want a sequel, even though I would love to see more of Barbie. Like, I think that this was just pitch perfect. <laughs> I agree with all of that, Tyler. And I, I will say the set design too. I mean, just this movie hit on all cylinders, but just having, you know, these created sets versus using CGI in these yes. views, like, I mean, it was, and even if they were only in the, you know, scenes for like a few seconds at a time, they were all like built um, and painted. And it was just, I don't know. It was just cool. It was a cool movie. Tyler, you mentioned the soundtrack to Barbie and what's amazing about this movie is it, yeah, the soundtrack alone garnered 12 Grammy Award nominations for the Grammys that'll be in, in early February of next year. Uh, for a movie soundtrack to lead the way at the Grammys, is just, it's never really happened. It's just, it's just an amazing I think, thing to happen. And I uh, think in that one category, it was four, wasn't it four out of the five nominations uh, was Barbie songs? For, for songs written for film and television, it's, it's, it's four of the five, I believe. Yes, that's insane. There was a lot of accolades for this movie. It's the, I mentioned already, it's the highest grossing film of the year. Uh, it's the 14th highest grossing movie of all time. Uh, it's the highest grossing film ever released by Warner Brothers. I know we did a Warner Brothers draft earlier this year. April actually selected Barbie uh, in the draft as one of her favorite Warner Brothers movies of all time in the 100 year anniversary of, of that prestigious film company. Uh, so just Barbie just had a hold 
on America, it seems. And I want to, before before we uh, get on to the next stuff in our best of the year, I wanted to uh, point out some uh, articles that were written by us this year. Uh, you can go back to the word on popculture.com and go to our archives to August 20th when I published an article titled The Studio Wanted to Cut the Heart of Barbie, which was about my favorite scene of the movie, which was the, the uh, You Were Beautiful scene uh, with Barbie and, and an older lady at a bus stop. And I want to uh, tell you where you can find the article that April referenced that she wrote that can be found in our archives from August 10th. Uh, it's titled We Are Enough, Barbie and the Impossibility of Being a Woman. And then if you want to go back and read uh, our word on pop culture movie review for the film you can go back to july 29th and you can read the uh, movie review of barbie that philip price wrote for the word on pop culture uh do y'all have anything y'all want to add about uh barbie before we go on with the rest of the show i mean really that it sparked i love the fact that it was so popular across so many different you know genders societies things like that and i just i think it's an important movie for everyone to watch mm -hmm. Yes, if it's it's definitely a movie. If you have not seen, it's coming to streaming this Friday. If you have a Max, so get Max we're, get we're, a free we're subscription. Recording the, we're recording this on, on December tenth. It will be released the final week sometime of the year. So it will already be when you're listening to this. It will already be streaming on Max. Yes. So finish this and watch it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> if you haven't already, and if you have, watch it again. I know. I know. Uh, I, I believe April and you, Tyler, have both seen it multiple times already. Yep. Yep. So we're going to let April go, and uh, she'll be back in the episode later to talk about some of her favorite music and television of, of 2023. And at the very beginning of the show, I said that there were two things that we were going to talk about that just led the pop culture world. Uh, and, and one of them was Barbie. The other thing would have to be Taylor Swift, uh, newly crowned Times Person of the Year. Uh, her Eras tour is, is one of the, if not, if not already, the biggest uh, selling tour of all time, one of them. And uh, Tyler's going to have a lot to say about Taylor Swift and the Eras Tour. So we'll get to that in, in just a moment here on the Best in Pop Culture of 2023. Pop music sensation Taylor Swift has been everywhere in 2023. From sold-out stadiums and radio and streaming playlists, to record-breaking box office numbers at your local cinema, to even the skyboxes at NFL football games across the country. She recently became the first-ever entertainer to be named Person of the Year by Time Magazine, and she's always one of the biggest topics in pop culture, and our guest and contributor Tyler Glover's favorite subject to talk about. So welcome back to the show, Tyler. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. It's pretty much your time to shine, Tyler. Uh, nobody had a bigger year in pop culture than Taylor Swift, and not just when it comes to music and selling albums and touring, but also when it comes to her uh, concert film and her star-studded relationship with NFL uh, Kansas City Chiefs tight end Travis Kelsey. So really, wherever you want to start with this, just basically tell us what being a fan of Taylor Swift has meant in 2023. Well, I will just say that, like, just fantastic what has been able to happen this year with the um, with the Eras Tour. I, I think that, you know, the Swifties are just a really good community of people that support each other. And I think that 
with the Eras Tour. Everybody, everybody knew it was going to be something special. But I don't think that I really fully expected it to be as special as it was, which is what's crazy, considering how big of a fan I am. But, you know, when you go to this Eras Tour, like, everybody is dressed up, and they are they're all dressed up a different, you know, they're either going spot on trying to mimic a look or they are being flat out creative. I still remember when I went to Arlington and to see her on one of her first shows, like I think it was like a fifth or sixth show. There was somebody dressed up. He shared a song called snow on the beach. And there was this lady that had this white cowboy hat with snowflakes dripping down it. She had a khaki shirt and she had this blue dress, blue dress that looked like waves. So she literally was a snow on a beach. Like, so it's been really fun to see, like, it's been, it's allowed for so much creativity and like, you know, with the friendship bracelet sharing has been so much fun. Like, I remember when I, so I got to see her twice in Arlington and in Nashville. And when I was in Nashville, I remember me and my friend that I went with was stopped at the stoplight and this, all of a sudden we start hearing this honking next to us and, you know, like they're telling us to roll our windows down. So we roll our windows down and friendship bracelets are just being thrown at us in our car <laughs> like they're like and so you know they're excited to give us these friendship bracelets so everybody I remember being at the tour I, both both concerts I went to everybody was just so complimentary and just so loving to each other like I love your outfit are you excited like just so supportive and um just such a fun experience and then the the concert this year I'm telling you like with being able to see this tour where she just literally puts it all out there like every album and just literally there's not much more that I would have added differently considering she does it for three hours but all of the costumes are just beautiful the first bodysuit that she's in and the lover set um is my favorite look of hers of all time it's so beautiful and she looks so stunning in it and just the production design, the production value was just out of this world um, on it. It was just such a fun experience because, like, not only was she, like, doing this, but she has made it so special. Like, you know, I was there the night that I was in Nashville was when she announced to the entire arena or entire, entire stadium that Speak Now Taylor's version was out July 7th. Like, I was so excited that I got to be there that night in that – had no idea – that that was coming. Like I, there have been people that have been conspiracy theorists for so long about stuff that I don't really play into it anymore because I've been down clown clown town too much. So I don't really listen to it, and I had was not even aware of this theory. So I was completely floored and so excited to be there. But she not only did it for Speak Now, but like she had, she also re announced 1989 Taylor's version, and then had like release parties at her tour. Like that's just. You know, something that I don't think an artist has ever done before and releasing this new music while on a tour and, you know, giving us I'm telling you, I don't know what's going to what's going to happen when she stops releasing music the way she is, because we have been so spoiled with ever since Lover. It's been Lover, Folklore, Evermore, Fearless Taylor's version, Red Taylor's version, Midnight's, Nights to Speak Now, um, Taylor's version, 1989 Taylor's version. I mean, like there's been so much album put out, so many albums put out that I don't know what we're going to do when we're not when we're back to a two year cycle or she just takes time off. Like we're going to have a lot to listen to, um, but it's just so special. I mean, and then something else she did to make it so special was the acoustic set um, where she was changing up, you know, giving us two surprise songs every night. She was changing it up or if she made a mistake, she was saying that that one was fair game. And I have to say, I had two nights that I feel like were like winning nights. Like I, don't think I could have chose 
better songs. Like my first night was Dead by a Thousand Cuts and Clean was my two surprise songs for the first one. And Sparks Fly and Teardrops on My Guitar was the second one. I know I had messaged you before saying that Clean was one of the songs I wanted. And so that was just fantastic that I got Clean. And then Teardrops on My Guitar was really special because that's the first song I ever heard by Taylor that made me a fan. Mm-hmm. So that was really exciting. Now I know you went to you said you mentioned the two shows. I know you went to one of the Arlington shows in Texas and you went to the Nashville show. Do you have a favorite of the two? I will say that um I definitely think Nashville was that was my favorite. And I think but I think that had a lot to do with the fact that when I was at Arlington, I was literally only two seats away from meeting God. I was literally in the, literally as high up as you pretty much could be. So it was very scary. Um, and that Dallas, if you've ever been to the stadium where the Dallas Cowboys play, it's literally the, the biggest one I've ever been to. And you try to look down and not psych yourself out that you're that high up, but all it does is remind you how, t- how high you are up. So that was part of it. But also the Nashville, with that being the night that she also released, you know, which I had better seats. I was in the 100 seat 100s. So I was definitely closer to the floor and, that was also the night that she did re- announce Speak Now. So I definitely think Nashville would have been the better of the two. Yeah. How well did the uh, concert film, the Eras Tour concert film, how well did that capture the live atmosphere uh, of this tour? I will say that I think it did it about the best that it, you could have possibly gotten with not being there. It's it, it really it's the angles of it. And like, I know even in the theater, I remember like, I remember being a little scared at how the experience would be because I know that they were encouraging singing and dancing. And I was like, oh, no, like, are we going to have this crazy person just screaming the lyrics where we can't even hear it? But I remember, I don't know if it was like this at every place, but I know the sound where I was at was so great because I literally was like just singing pretty loudly myself and I didn't even hear anybody around me and I saw other people singing. So they had it really like the surround sound was just fantastic to make you feel like you were kind of there, especially in the theater. Um, I will say, though, if you've never been to a Taylor Swift concert, there's definitely no energy like that that I've ever been at (laughs) in my entire life. People are losing their minds. And if you think that you are being looked at weird, you are wrong. (laughs) Like there's no there's and that's one of the things that I loved about it so much, too, is that I you know, people in my everyday life that see me and like see what I post on Facebook and like see my TikToks, you know, they're probably thinking, whoa, this is something. I mean, like, I know some people when I go to these Taylor Swift dance parties in Little Rock are always like, you're going to wear that. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to fit in. Like the last, the last one I went to, I was in the, I was in an outfit that was mirroring her reputation. Um, heirs, at the heirs tour, what she wears during her reputation. Look, and I literally like I got so many compliments and I had like at least about 10 people at different times through the night want to take their picture with me. So you're definitely not like it, it, it's you're you know, if you think that you're going to be crazy, you're not you're going to fit in there. And I, that experience is like, I mean, I know that I, I don't really like being around 70,000 people either. <laughs> That's why I get there so early so I can get in my seat and, you know, not feel like I'm just surrounded all the time. But if you ever can get over that, it seriously is like you, you can't capture. I don't think you ev- will ever experience something like that in your entire life with the way people are. I mean, there are people screaming the lyrics, you know, like beside you and like you're you don't even look crazy. It's just fantastic. 
Yeah, and you mentioned the dance parties that you've been to. I know you've been to at least two this year. Those seem to have been uh, popping uh, up more often. Like, I know venues are doing multiple times a year with the Taylor Swift dance party. And I know there's been multiple venues in just around our area that have done that. So other than, like, the people dressing up like Taylor Swift and just having a, a great time, how's the atmosphere to that? Is it, is it pretty packed? They normally, normally, yes. Um, there was, I've, I've been to about, I think, four now, uh, I think, total. And um, I know that the last one seemed like it wasn't as full, but I, I think that that was a weekend that was something going on around Little Rock, though. And I think that was why. But um, even then, it was, it was still very, very packed and full of people like me, which is, you know, fantastic. And one of the things that this one, the company that puts these on, like Taylor Fest, they do a they do a remarkable and fantastic job because they encourage you to get on the stage with them and dance. Elsie, uh, what do you think about that relationship, Tyler? I I really like him, and I'm really excited about it because I really feel like I genuinely feel like she is really happy with him. And you know, one of the things, and I will say this kind of this will kind of go back to the show just for a minute because you know one thing that I think was special about this too is that we've seen this all kind of play out in real time with her breakup with Joe Allen on this tour and stuff too. Like, you know, shortly after the tour started, she changed, um, she changed one at the set list. Um, after just a few shows from in during the folklore set to invisible string, which is a really kind of romantic song talking about how they, there was an invisible string tying them together. And it's always been believed to be about Joe. And she changed it to a song called the one, which was like in the, chorus it goes it would have been fun if you would have been the one so it's kind of like that switch happened right at the time so it's been really cool because I feel like there's been subtle ways that she's kind of been letting us know how she feels about things and I remember one of the most um you know because I've definitely been on the TikTok lives for the Eras tour when she during surprise songs and when she did the last kiss uh, when she performed last kiss from her sweet now album you know a lot of people noticed that she was actually crying in the middle of it like you could tell she was crying and like, so you could see that, you know, her raw emotions from that. But then you saw, but then, you know, you see like her lyric change in Brazil, which is something that's fantastic. I loved it. People couldn't believe she did it, but it was like her commenting about her life and about Travis where she changed the lyric to the, during the karma song to the and lyric originally says, um, karma is the guy on the screen coming straight home to me. And she changed the lyric to karma is the guy on the chiefs coming straight home to me since he's on the Kansas city chiefs. And so that was just, it's been really kind of cool to see it kind of play out almost in real time in some ways to her giving us a glimpse into her life in ways that I feel like a lot of celebrities don't, or that it's not really been something done like that anyway before. Um, so that's been really fun to see. Um, but because of things like that, like you're really genuinely seeing how happy she is with him. Like there's a, even a TikTok video of, her running to him that looks like something out of a cinematic movie where she finishes her show and she runs up to him and like he picks her up and gives her a kiss and like it's just so romantic <laughs> well uh do you have anything else you want to uh add about taylor swift's 2023 before we wrap this up um, no, just that you know i just that you know we've still got what's crazy about this is that her tour is already the highest grossing tour in history, grossing over a billion dollars. And she still has an entire year of this tour to go, which is crazy. 
Um, and so, and we still have two re-records to come out until she finally owns all of her albums. So it'll be exciting. There's even speculation now about, there's even been speculation that she might drop another new album too, which that's totally speculation. But either way, like there's, we definitely know reputation and debuts are coming soon. So it's going to be another exciting year. She might even top herself next year. Who knows? Well, it'd be mighty hard to top 2023 for Taylor. It really would. I'm back with April Hanson Spivey, and we're going to talk about some of our favorite albums and music of 2023 so april what do you have us uh, starting off with today well so um i have been waiting and waiting for new music from the turnpike troopers they are my absolute favorite band and we haven't had a new album since 2017's a long way from your heart um so six years is a super long time compared to their other album releases but the band you know obviously went on hiatus for many reasons one being that the lead singer evan felker um, went to rehab for alcoholism. So um, you and I have seen them live um, t- before their new album came out. Um, so it was a little bit, I was hoping they were going to, you know, we would get to see, well, we are going to get to see them in January. I'm very excited Yeah, a little over this. two weeks from now. <laughs> a little over two weeks from now we'll be yeah. seeing them in yeah. their home state of Oklahoma. I know, it's going to be so exciting because we'll see them now with this new album. Um, so I was a little nervous to see how it would land. Um, but I was completely blown away. It fulfilled all my expectations. It was called A Cat in the Rain. Um, it is quintessential Turnpike. Um, songs like Mean Old Son brought me two of my absolute favorites on the album, The Rut and Chipping Mill. Um, and they both seem to kind of discuss Felker's sobriety. Um, well, Chipping Mill is actually written by bassist R.C. Edwards along with another songwriter named Lance Rourke. So I, I think Chipping Mill... I, I think it's certainly about uh, Felker and the band getting back together, but I think there's a little bit more to it than just Felker's sobriety. I think it's like, welcome back to the band or welcome yeah. back to their fan base. Well, and that was kind of, you know, I was going to say that it kind of, it's a mix of different things. You know, it talks about how he ran his heart through a chipping mill, sold my soul for rock and roll. I do think it is kind of that, just the band saying, okay, this was a rough patch. <laughs> and it does kind of, it's that all-encompassing. Um, but I will say that the rut, um, I really think does focus on mm-hmm. Evan Felker's sobriety and it's really probably my favorite on the album, uh, just lyrically. It's very similar in my mind to the bird hunters in the sense that there's this man out in the wilderness pondering something, um, you know, for the bird hunters, it was a relationship in the rut. I, I feel like it's sobriety. So, um, I love the chorus though, because even if you're not listening to it as somebody who struggles with alcoholism, it's, you know, it talks about riding out of the rut that you're in, and I think that's really, can relate to anyone going through something. Yeah, uh, I, I really liked A Cat in the Rain. It's one of my favorite albums of the year, too. So thankful that the Turnpike Tree Doors have reunited and are bringing new music to us. I always do my uh, best Americana and country music songs of the year list, and I have five of the ten tracks off this album. So half of the album made my list. You should check that out at the wordonpopculture.com in our music section. It's already up there. Uh, so uh, the five songs from the album that made my list this year are Mean Old Son, uh, Chipping Mill, The Rut, uh, East Side Love Song, Bottoms Up, and uh, the title track, A Cat in the Rain. Um, do you have anything else you want to add about this uh, this album? Just that I love uh, Sober um, <laughs> Evan Felker and I love, I mean, Turnpike, they're you know, doing as best as, as they've ever done. So I'm very excited about that. My favorite um, 
album of the year is by the guy who's probably been my favorite modern singer-songwriter over the last decade plus, and that is uh, Jason Isbell with his band The 400 Unit. The album is Weather Vanes. And uh, speaking of seeing people in concert, uh, Isbell is actually going to be co-headlining that show in Oklahoma City that we'll be seeing in about two weeks uh, with the Turnpike Troubadours. And we have not seen him, even though we've seen him a handful of times, we haven't seen him since Weather Vanes released uh, this summer. So I'm looking forward to hearing some of those tracks uh, for the first time in uh, concert. Uh, he really wrote most of this album while he was uh, filming uh, his role in uh, director Martin Scorsese's film, Killers of the Flower Moon, which is, even though I haven't seen it, it's supposedly uh, one of the uh, best movies of the year. So many great songs. He, uh, Isbel wrote all of them. Uh, I have five songs as well from this album on my list, including uh, King of Oklahoma, uh, Middle of the Morning, Death Wish, um, This Ain't It, and Miles. Uh, just an amazing album. Some all, all other good songs include White Beretta, Vestavia Hills. Uh, they're really, the entire album is terrific. Uh, what have you liked uh, from it? Because I know you're a big Jason Isbell fan too. What have you liked from Weather Vanes? Yeah, well, there's actually several songs that I love. I love Death Wish. That's that's one of my apps. It's probably my favorite song on the album. Um, you know, King of Oklahoma is great. So what do you have next? I have, so I had never heard of Noah Kahn um, before this year, though apparently he did have two other albums before his breakout 2022 album, Six Season. And I realized that this was 2022, that it came out. Yes, but the but, double, the, mm -hmm. the uh, extended release has some of his best songs on the album. For sure, 21 songs on the album, on the extended release. And, um, you know, obviously his breakout success, it earned him a Grammy nomination for Best New Artist. Um, he, you know, it's kind of interesting because I fell into listening to him. Um, you know, I know he's big on TikTok, but that's not how I found him. I actually found him off of your um, Country in Americana Spotify song list. Yes, because Paul Revere, mm -hmm. uh, which is off the uh, extended uh, edition of Stick Season, which is uh, subtitled We'll All Be Here Forever, uh, Paul Revere made that list that I was previously talking about. And I remember hearing that song, too, for the first time. And, you know, sometimes the songs, I don't always, you know, agree with you on every single piece of music. But when that song came on, it just com immediately piqued my interest. And I remember asking you, like, who is this? And it quickly became one of my favorite songs this year. Um, I was hooked. And then I went ahead and discovered uh, Dial Drunk, which, uh, you know, and then finally the rest of his album. And it's really, you know, this kind of like a folk pop album. Um, it kind of reminds me of like a Mumford and Sons, which he has mentioned that's one of his inspirations. Um, he had also mentioned recently that Paul Simon was an inspiration, which I can see that because what really has hooked me to Khan um, is his lyrics. Mm -hmm. um, he's got a beautiful voice, but man, he can weave a story. And if you really look, the fact that it's 21 songs that he wrote, and I mean, they're all just completely chock full of um, heartbreak and, you know, there's so much soul and creativity. It's about being, you know, kind of, stuck in a small town, lost love, not being able to break out of, you know, out of yourself. And he writes it all in just a really captivating way. Several favorites on the album. I love, still love Paul Revere the most, Style Drunk, Stick Season, Homesick, Northern Attitude, New Perspectives, Growing Sideways. I'm pretty much just listing every song on the album now, but it's just really that good. So check him out if you haven't listened to him yet. Uh, another one of my favorites from this year is from an artist that we did have the chance to see. Uh, perform the new music in concert uh, in Little Rock, 
and I believe she performed all 11 tracks on the album at that show. Not not in order, but she performed all of them. And that is uh, Ashley McBride with her newest album, The Devil I Know. Uh, this album is uh, really a, a nice uh, mainstream country album with some rock influences that... McBride's kind of one of those artists that she gets nominated for mainstream country awards, rightfully so, but she doesn't really seem to have big hits on country radio. I'm hoping that'll change. There is still a little unfortunate sexism when it comes to country airplay and and country listenership that may keep her uh, down the charts a, a ways. But uh, I actually had four songs uh, from this album. So yeah, if you've been listening... 14 songs total from the Turnpike Troubadours, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, and Ashley McBride uh, made up my top 100. So I know that's a lot. But uh, those four songs were uh, Light On in the Kitchen, which was the highest ranking on the album. I absolutely love that. She co-wrote it with Jesse Alexander and Connie Harrington. McBride, by the way, co-wrote every song on her album, which is really impressive. Uh, and the other songs that made my list were Made for This, uh, the title track, The Devil I Know, and uh, a song uh, that she co-wrote with uh, Lainey Wilson, who was the Entertainer of the Year this year from the CMA Awards, uh, called Cool Little Bars. Uh, so yeah, Ashley McBride, one of the best uh, going in country music right now. Uh, what's next on, on your list? So I uh, next on my list would be uh, satisfying both my 16-year-old self and my current self, which is interesting. So my 16-year-old self would have rocked the hell out to Olivia Rodrigo. But I think it's pretty cool because her music is still something that me in, at 35 can also rock out to. Um, honestly, most people that I've talked to, you know, women, men, no matter the age, seem to connect with her music, which is... Uh, really a testament to her talent as a songwriter and a performer because I, I just don't know if this many people should actually connect to someone that you know the the themes that she talks about are really just kind of you know teenage angst kind of deal um she's 20 now but still that's kind of her hook um you know she found fame with her first album sour um with driver's license um but her latest album guts is definitely edgier and really has some jewels on it um i love vampire uh, get Him Back, Bad Idea Right, Love is Embarrassing, Ballad of a Homeschooled Girl. My favorite is probably Get Him Back, um, just because I'm a sucker for creative wordplay in songs, and she really just does a good job playing with the idea of getting him back in a negative way, an ex-boyfriend, but also actually wanting to get him back in her life, and I love that she plays with that. I'm not as big into pop music as you are, but I do like some of Olivia Rodrigo's stuff especially the dark and brooding uh, Vampire, which has been nominated for uh, Song of the Year at the Grammy Awards uh, in uh, early February of next year. And uh, of all the uh, songs nominated, I think that's the one that I kind of hope the most uh, will, will win at the Grammy Awards. I, I really dig the song Vampire. Yeah, it's, it's a really haunting song and also creative in that, you know, she talks about her ex bleeding her dry like a vampire. And, you know, I just the depth and the thought behind her lyrics it's crazy that she's just 21 or 20 years old last one i have on my list and i hate to stay in the in the same realm of of uh, americana and country music but that, that's what, what i listen to mostly these days especially in a year where uh, bruce springsteen didn't put it on an album brandy clark's self-titled album uh and this one was a little bit mixed for some of brandy carla uh, did I say Brandy Carlisle? I meant Brandy Clark. This is Brandy <laughs> Clark's self-titled album, uh, which here's where the confusion comes in. Brandy Clark's self-titled album is produced by Brandy Carlisle. There we go. You got around to it. <laughs> um, 
A lot of Brandy Clark's fans were maybe a little bit upset because it doesn't sound as country. It's a little bit more smooth uh, in the vocals, maybe even a little bit more poppier. But I think what Carlisle's production has done for Clark has really gotten her voice uh, out there more, which is amazing. And these stories just fit the current performance uh, of the album for Brandy Clark. Three of them made my list, uh, including Buried, which is very high on my list. It's just a brutal, devastating uh, song about uh, still loving somebody who you're no longer in a relationship uh, with and always will. Uh, and then the others that I really liked are called uh, Best Ones. And, uh, and a um, duet she did with Brandy Carlisle called Dear Insecurity, say, which if you've nice. ever had any anxieties and insecurities in your life, which I'm sure most of us have, or either you're lying to yourself, uh, you will uh, identify with with the song Dear Insecurity. I think it is a brilliant uh, album. I kind of wish it was an album that maybe uh, would speak to some pop fans a little bit more, but maybe it's a little too, well, I don't, maybe too loungy for, for like what pop music has become these days. Uh, but it's just such a great vocal album and, and the writing, which is mostly done by brandy clark uh, with some co-writers uh, is, is just uh, pretty great another one that i'll throw out that is not in the country and americana realm uh, is the foo fighters latest album their first without a uh, drummer uh, taylor hawkins after he passed away but here we are uh is the name of the album it was released in early june uh I, it's one that i probably only went through once time one time all the way through towards the beginning when it was released but there are some great rock songs on it, like Rescued and Under You and, and Show Me How and The Glass. And now there's a, another performance of The Glass that they did on Saturday Night Live with the great Her. And you can find that as a single as well now. That's not the version that's on the album, but here we are. Uh, but, but another great performance. So... Um, I really need to dive into this album. It, it's more. a really good album, and you can mm -hmm. feel you can feel the emotion. It's it's almost like a concept album because you can just feel the emotional aspect from not only uh, Dave Grohl and his bandmates losing Taylor Hawkins last year, but also late last year uh, Dave Grohl lost his mom Virginia. And as anybody who knows Grohl and the Foo Fighters, they had a very very close. Uh, relationship that man has uh, gone through a lot of grief and so apparently and this, into this, his music. this album really is is full of grief which which may be hard for some it may be a little heavy but it, they still rock uh, so it's still something that you can like bang your head all right I'm joined here by April Hanson Spivey my lovely wife frequent contributor to the word on pop culture website and, po and podcast. And uh, today we're going to talk about uh, some of our favorite TV shows of 2023. I believe we prepared three each uh, to talk about today. So uh, why don't you start with, uh, with what's number three on your list, April? So my number three was uh, Ted Lasso. So this okay. was the final mm -hmm. season of third Ted Lasso. Third season. and final season. So we said goodbye to one of the best TV characters ever created, in my opinion. <laughs> Ted Lasso, brought to life by the amazing Jason Sudeikis, um, and honestly, like it was, it's such a good wrap up to the show because the show premiered at the right time, right in the middle of 2020, when we all needed to watch this kind, forgiving, compassionate 
goofy hero to balance out all the cynicism in the world. And honestly, in you know TV shows, because there's a lot of cynicism in TV shows, so Ted Lasso was kind of that, um, I don't know, just everyone's favorite dad kind of situation again, um, which is really what was needed, I think, at the time. So I really appreciated the last season so much and the way that they wrapped it up in a way that made sense and did his character really justice. And really, the writers did a phenomenal job giving satisfying endings to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of critics didn't care as much for the third season as the first two. Uh, the first two, of course, won Outstanding Comedy Series at the Emmy Awards. Uh, season three is nominated. Those awards will be in mid-January. But I, and I, I didn't quite get why they, they didn't really like it. Maybe just they were maybe two seasons of kindness and optimism mixed with a little bit of you know the depression that some of the characters have on the show. Maybe that was just too much for for the for the critics but i i found myself enjoying the third season and final season maybe not as much as i did the top two because i think the first two seasons were both number one on my year in list and ted lasso will certainly be in my top 10 uh year in list but it's it's definitely not the top one on my list i see it's not the top one on your list either but um i found myself quite enjoying it i liked how they wrapped up uh most of the uh, storylines. I like that uh, the show didn't uh, have us hating on uh, Nick Mohammed's Nate for, for too long. For sure. There uh, was that redemption story. Yeah. That was really important. Uh, yeah, and I think, uh, I think the show played out well for the Ted Lasso character. I, I don't know that it was everything I wanted, but I think it was what that character needed for his life yeah absolutely and that's a really good point because i mean honestly when i say it did the character justice was it the exact ending i would have necessarily wanted for him i don't know i kind of would have liked him with rebecca hannah waddingham's emmy winning rebecca but that's just not really they never the show never really set it up like it was going to be that way there was kind of uh in early on a will they or won't they but it, it never really focused on it so it wasn't surprising it didn't end that way yeah, what what he needed was was back home, uh, and I think uh, I think that they uh, they made it work for him. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that you know it's the romance side of it was kind of you know with Keely and Roy and um, Jamie. You know, I think that kind of satisfied that part of it a little bit. But you're right. I mean, I would have loved to see him with her, but I don't. It it just wasn't what the character needed. And as far as like the critics, you know, the first season was very you know, optimistic, forgiving, all the things. But the second season was actually pretty dark. You know, we got to see another side. There was more of the depression. You know, his character was not, like, one-dimensional, which was very important, um, or really two-dimensional, I guess. But um, he, in the third season, I think, was kind of a mix of both. Well, speaking of of dark, and Ted Lasso has nothing on, on this show when it comes to being dark, uh, number three on my list is maybe not necessarily my third favorite show of the year, but I know that I know what made your list, and some of your shows on your list are in my top three for sure. Uh, so I, I kind of wanted to give listeners more things to look into if they haven't already. So number three on my list, I'm going to go with HBO's Barry, which also ended this year, and also like Ted Lasso stars a Saturday Night Live alum and Bill Hader, uh, who co-created it with Alec Berg. And uh, the fourth and final season that aired this year was probably the single darkest 
quote, comedy, quote, uh, that uh, television has, has ever seen. Uh, now, the show has always been billed as a black comedy, uh, but it got more dramatic, more dark in the final season than a lot of fans expected. And I think that that kind of disappointed a lot of fans. I just don't see how this this hitman character played by Hater. I don't see any other way for his storyline to to head toward an ending than than how the show wrapped it up. The majority of the characters, which which we love as fans of the show, uh, I say we as, as the collective fan. I know I know you've seen a total of maybe one episode, <laughs> yeah. but most of them don't get fairy tale endings. They get the ending that you would expect for you know dark characters to get. And uh, I think that the season was quite well uh, when it comes to that. And it's among the most cinematic 30-minute shows, if not the most cinematic 30-minute show you will ever see. And that is testament to the uber talent that Bill Hader has as a director. Because in this final season, really the final two seasons, he directed every episode of this final season and most of the penultimate season, it shows a knack for directing that could have Bill Hader as the next Jordan Peele uh, a type, a, a, a guy known for comedy that just becomes a super dark and intriguing uh, film director. I think that's what we'll see from Bill Hader in the future. We may even see him, like Peele, be more of a director than an actor going forward. Uh, but terrific performances all around. I'm still irritated that the Emmy Awards didn't nominate Sarah Goldberg for Supporting Actress. Uh, even though I, I would have said she probably could have been a lead actress too, but they didn't nominate her for either of those categories. And I thought she had the finest acting performance in the final season of Barry and one of the uh, most riveting and interesting uh, performances all year on television. And then uh, Anthony Kerrigan, Stephen Root, Henry Winkler, they all did great work as well. Uh, so, so the final season of Barry is number three on my list. What do you have at number two on yours? So number two on my list was Reservation Dogs. Um, and that was also, I guess it's just all these shows wrapping up. Yeah, it was its <laughs> third and final season. Mm -hmm. You can Fair. find that on Hulu. It's an FX production on Hulu. Yeah, three seasons apparently is a sweet spot for a lot of shows, even though I feel like this one could have gone on longer. I, I wish it would have gone on longer. I feel like a little different with Lasso. I think it, it worked out well, but this one I really wanted to see more. But I had the fortune of watching the entire three-season series of Reservation Dogs at once instead of starting it back in 2021. Mm -hmm. And I really loved watching the character progression all at once, um, as well as honestly learning about a different culture. I think the show was brilliantly written, hilarious. It taught me things, um, like even the dying and grief rituals in Native American culture. And I know that this show isn't like supposed to be a roadmap for understanding everything about the Native American culture, but... What it did was have Native Americans telling Native American stories. Yeah, it, it's created by by indigenous Sterling Harjo with a little production help from Taika Waititi, uh, and it completely uh, is written by indigenous people, and most of the cast is indigenous actors. Mm -hmm. And it's and to me that's so important to have that kind of representation because it it makes the storylines more authentic. Um, and just in general, I mean, it was also kind of, it seemed to be kind of a bit of a character study of the different generations and really how that divide isn't so, you know, gaping after all. Especially this final season. Mm hmm Absolutely. And so it was just kind of neat to watch all that. But really, I mean, it focused on this group of teenagers, um, Alora, who was played by, and um, hopefully I don't butcher her name. Devery Jacobs. Devery Jacobs. 
uh, bear, defaro, um, wunate. Thank you. <laughs> and cheese, his pronouns are he and him. Yep. By Lane Factor. <laughs> For those who watch the show, they will they will recognize that. And uh, Paulina Alexis, who played Willie Jack, um, you know, just kind of growing up and navigating life after their friend Daniel commits suicide. It's it's really just a fascinating and heartbreaking and perfect portrayal of this group of teenagers. You know, it was a heavy topic, but the show was so funny. Um, Willie Jack was probably my absolute favorite character throughout the series, and just seeing her growth as well was was pretty cool. Yeah, and I gotta I gotta point out some of the supporting cast. You have Sarah Podimsky as Rita, who's Bear's mother, brilliant. Zon McClarden as Officer Big, one of the Light Horsemen uh, police officers. Uh, you have Dallas Goldtooth as William Knifeman, who's the spirit that Bear sees throughout the series. Gary Farmer as Uncle Brownie, uh, Wes Studi as Bucky, and uh, Kirk Fox as Kenny Boy, the owner of the local salvage yard like the one non-indigenous actor in the cast. It, it is just a perfect supporting cast. And some of the guests this year, which included uh, most notably Ethan Hawke, Lily Gladstone as Hokti, uh, Daniel's mom, Willie Jack's aunt. Uh, and then you had um, uh, Graham Greene as Maximus, a, a, an eccentric recluse who kind of was part of the town in, in the old days and then comes back in the final season. And then... Um, the actress who plays the deer lady, this is probably the hardest one to pronounce, but Kaney Tio Horn, I'm sorry for butchering that, but the deer lady episode is one mm. of the single best episodes of television uh, in 2023. So Very just, haunting. It was an yeah, important episode to the, have. It's, it's done as basically a horror film uh, in the show that's kind of a... Uh, comedy most of the time, but also can be very dramatic at times. But yeah, the, the thing I love the most, like you're mentioning about Reservation Dogs, and I watched the, each season at a, at a time, so one a year, whereas you had the luxury of, of binging. And I don't really know if that's a luxury, but I can see how it kind of flows together well, watching it all within the span of a month like we did. And I rewatched the first two seasons with you. Just seeing a culture on television that we have never seen really on television especially in, in the right way like this. It, it, it was just an amazing watch. I, I, I can understand uh, how people could think that it could have gone on. It really could have. But I think that uh, Sterling Harjo, the creator, lead writer, I think he's got other stuff he wants to do. And I don't think he wanted to give... Uh, I, I don't get the sense that it's a very widely watched uh, series, so I don't think he wanted to give uh, FX Productions or Hulu a chance to cancel it before he could finish his story. So I think that's why... That they pretty much decided to wrap it up. Number two on my list is a show that I would never have thought in a million years that I would be into, and I actually just finished it this week. Uh, it, it premiered on HBO early in the year. Uh, in fact, uh, mid-January is when it premiered. And the reason why I didn't think I'd get to it in a million years is because it, it's based on a video game, and I'm not a gamer, but I've been hearing all year about how great the show is and how you don't have to be into video games to enjoy it, and that is absolutely correct. So if that's keeping you from watching HBO's The Last of Us, which you can stream on Max, you should really get into it. Another reason why I didn't really think I'd, I'd really enjoy it that much is I'm not really into zombie stuff. Uh, but this takes an interesting uh, – it, it makes zombies interesting in that it's, it's caused by a fungal infection. It's basically a pandemic that turns people into – zombies when, when a fungus takes over their uh, nervous system and uh, the lead characters Joel played by Pedro Pascal and Ellie played by Bella Ramsey they just develop this chemistry together that is amazing 
and I talked about the guest actors on uh, Reservation Dogs. Half of the guest acting categories at the Emmys in a few weeks are um, from this show. Anna Torv is brilliant. Merle Dandridge is, is great. Melanie Linsky in a couple ep episodes, wonderful. You have Lamar Johnson and Kevon Montreal Woodard, who are both nominated for Emmys in, in, in an episode, and they are just fantastic. And Woodard is actually a deaf actor, so just an unbelievable performance. But the one episode that stood out to me the most doesn't actually feature much of Joel and Ellie, and it is the third episode of the season uh, called Long, Long Time, uh, based on a Linda Ronstadt song title. And it features the story of Bill and Frank, who uh, you learn that they're friends of Joel, uh, Joel's, and um, they kind of form this, this relationship, and it is the most touching uh, hour of television that I believe I saw all year. Uh, most of my favorite shows were this year were comedies. That's probably why, but it's such a touching episode, and I, I, I you should just watch The Last of Us uh, streaming on Max. It's an HBO series, and you have plenty of time because the second season won't be out until 2025, unfortunately. Oh, that's a long gap. Yeah, the strikes and everything, and it, it's just this, it's a very cinematic show, one that they shoot on location, but also have to do a ton of probably uh, FX work with uh, because of of the. Uh, fungus zombies and some of the other stuff so it's just i have a feeling it's a show that takes a long long time to <laughs> i didn't really mean the pun there but it takes a long long time to uh, to create and get out uh what's uh number one on your list so number one on my list was actually because it's hard to beat reservation dogs honestly for me because that was such a i loved that show this year but it actually was shrinking mm -hmm. um it's uh this was the first season of uh or no i'm sorry oh yeah it was the no, first season, the first right? season. Um, so it premiered in January, and we just had gotten around to it recently. And, um, you know, first of all, it's a super unrealistic show. <laughs> like, let's just be real honest. There's no counselor um, that would let a client live with them. And But honestly, this is a massive testament to the writers because the heart and humor just absolutely suck you in, and you just go along with that ride. You just ignore that, <laughs> that reality that this would not actually happen. So it helps, too, that the cast is amazing. Jason Siegel is in the lead role as Jimmy, a therapist whose wife was killed in a car accident, and he is the one that starts, you know, being brutally honest with his patients and trying to actually push to make real changes in their life instead of just kind of listening to them, um, which is really the role of a therapist. But um, one of his clients actually starts um, living with him, which is not um, great, <laughs> but um, but it's actually, you know, it's a great show, like I said. Um, his boss and the cast, Paul B. Harrison Ford. <laughs> it's like In a very character. surprising role. Very surprising role. You know, he's You don't a, really think comedy when you think Harrison Ford. For sure, but he his timing is amazing. I mean, his comedic timing is awesome. Um, you know, he plays this therapist who has Parkinson's complicated relationship with his daughter. So there's some dramatic parts for him to kind of show off mm. those, you know, dramatic chops that he has but his comedy is pretty perfect you know you have Liz which is an overbearing neighbor um, but played by Krista Miller a wonderful supporting cast but honestly the absolute crown jewel of the series which is a saying something because you have you know Ford and also Siegel in there but Jessica Williams as therapist Gabby has given one of the best TV performances this year her timing is her comedic timing is phenomenal she's I mean I have laughed hard <laughs> this year watching the show um at her lines 
Shrinking wasn't my favorite comedy of the year. This is going to sound weird. It wasn't my favorite comedy of the year, but Shrinking was the funniest show on television yeah. this year. Yeah, it absolutely. That's interesting that that's not your top. Uh, to me, that's that's why I put it as my top because it yeah. was just you know I laughed harder at the show than any any of the other ones. Well, and, and, and Harrison Ford's been getting most of the talk from the cast, and Jason Segel's the lead, so he gets a lot. But you're right; the single funniest performance on television this year is Jessica Williams as Gabby, and the women on the show it just had me in stitches constantly. You mentioned Kristen Miller, mm-hmm. and I got to throw out Lakita Maxwell, who plays Alice, uh, oh, yeah. uh, Jimmy, uh, Jason Segel's character's daughter. She's also extremely hilarious uh, in the show. Just a perfectly casted show uh, created by Bill Lawrence of Scrubs fame. Uh, You might also know Krista Miller from Scrubs, uh, and she is also Bill Lawrence's wife in real life. Uh, It was co-created by Bill Lawrence with Jason Segel and Brett Goldstein, who was on the first show we mentioned, uh, Ted Lasso, uh, on this podcast. Always comes back to Lasso. Um, You know, but what I really appreciate about the show, too, is because it was funny, but it also had very real and raw moments, and it isn't afraid to tackle grief um, while also being deliriously funny. My, I don't usually like to do this, but I've done it the last four years in a row where my number one show has been back-to-back. In 2020 and 21, it was Ted Lasso, the first two seasons. My number one show this year is the same as my number one show last year, and it's amazing because usually shows don't get better in their second season, but I could argue that The Bear, uh, another FX production on Hulu, um, got even better in its second season. Uh, it, it shows them trying to open up this restaurant, which is where the show gets the title, The Bear, and uh, every single performance in this show is perfect. You have Jeremy Allen White as Carmi, the lead chef. You have Eben Moss Backrack as Richie, who was kind of the manager of the restaurant before uh, Harm got there. And the growth that Richie goes through in season two is, it's probably my single favorite performance on television this year. Uh, you got uh, um, Io Edabiri as Sydney, who I, I think if, if anybody on the show kind of took a step back in season two, it may have been uh, Sydney, uh, but that's no fault uh, of, of the amazing actress Io Edabiri. Uh, uh, Lionel Boyce's Marcus has a great episode where he goes to uh, uh, Sweden, I believe. Lisa uh, Colon Zayas is perfect. Abby Elliott, they actually gave her something to do in the second season, and she knocked it out of the park. There's an episode called Fishes, middle of the second season, that has just an all-star supporting cast that includes John Bernthal, Oliver Platt, Jamie Lee Curtis, Gillian Jacobs, John Mulaney, uh, and... Um, Uh, Bob Odenkirk and there's a scene at the table dinner table between John Bernthal and Bob Odenkirk that was maybe the most riveting scene of television I saw all all year I just can't say enough kind things about uh, the show that Christopher Storer has kind of built out of nowhere and out of nothing and he's he's turned it into the best show on television Uh, I know you enjoyed uh, I was a little bit surprised it wasn't on your list I know you enjoyed the bear uh, immensely, but like I said, Reservation Dogs uh, is probably number two on my list this year. But I knew it was on your list, so I didn't need feel the need to have it on, on the list for the podcast purposes. Uh, so, do you have anything you want to add about the Bear? You know, I really, honestly, I loved season one so much of the Bear that mm-hmm. I'm not sure that season two was my favorite out of the two mm-hmm. seasons. However, as you mentioned, the episodes, the fishes having that episode, it was so exhausting, but it was such. What a masterclass in not only writing, but acting. I mean, it was just 
100 miles per hour from the beginning of the episode mm-hmm. to the end. And not only that, but having the next episode mm-hmm. be Forks, yeah. which was Richie's, you know, kind of... You could make trip. the argument that Fishes and Forks, and either either way you want to put them, are the two greatest episodes of television in 2023. They really are. And honestly, having those back-to-back was so... Um, satisfying as a fan Mm -hmm. um, just to see because they were very different episodes you know you have the intensity from that but then you have almost the and it was intense for Richie but it was almost kind of like a calmness and a peace within himself Mm -hmm. that he needed so having that chaos and then immediately transfer to that peace I don't know that was that was beautiful I will Mm -hmm. say that that and the show was phenomenal the whole season I do miss the Italian beat the original (laughs) beat shop I think that's why I love the first season so much but there are definitely moments in the Baron season two that were just um, top tier television for 2023 I am pleased to be joined by Philip Price uh, who you've probably remember if you've listened to some of our movie-centric episodes of this podcast. He's usually with us twice a year at the end of the year to talk about his favorite movies and performances of the year. And then he usually comes back around Oscar season to uh, uh, give us who he thinks should win at the Academy Awards. Uh, I want to thank you for joining me once again, Philip. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me, as always. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, and I want to remind you, uh, the listeners, uh, that is, that you can find Philip's reviews at reviewsfromabed.com. Philip, I'm happy to see you reviewing movies again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, it was, a, it was a weird year. Started off thinking, you know, we were going to have another good, strong year of uh, video reviews and uh, didn't exactly end up, you know, end up turning out that way. But and took me a while, but I just... You know, I, I have that Letterboxd app, uh, which is super popular in the film community uh, or the online film community anyways. And um, so I, I still wanted to, you know, s- try to see as much as I could. And um, the more I kept, you know, seeing and, and logging in my kind of film diary on that app, the longer my reviews kept getting. And I was like, what am I doing? I need to just post these on my on my old website. So. Um, yeah, you know, it, it took a little bit, but reviews from a bed is, is back up and running, I guess you could say. So I guess I just, I can't help it. I need somewhere to, uh, some kind of outlet to, uh, put my, my reactions and thoughts on what I see out there. The, the process doesn't feel finished until I do that, but thank you to the word for always, you know, um, posting and publishing those reviews as well. I can't, can't say thank you enough for doing that all these years. I knew you wouldn't be uh, gone too long from reviewing uh, movies because it just seems like it's a, a huge part of, of who you are. Yeah, it's, I, I I tried. Trust me. <laughs> I just tried to like tried to go and, and enjoy it and just kind of, you know, enjoy the movie going experience as, as a casual viewer. But uh, but with that with that app, like I said, I couldn't help myself. I kept logging it and writing a few thoughts and the thoughts just kept getting longer and longer and more refined and. Uh, you know, I think about it more and more. And, and so, yeah, we're back to, to where we started when, uh, when we were in college. So funny, funny, everything's full circle, I guess. Well, let's, let's jump right into uh, your three favorite movies of 2023. Uh, we'll start with number three and work our way to what you thought was the best movie of the year. Then after that, we'll get into uh, your three favorite performances. And they don't necessarily have to be your three favorites. If you wanted to, uh, to uh, point out some uh, performances you loved that, weren't from movies that are in your top three you could do that as well if, if they happen to be in your top three movies that that's cool too uh but let's get started with uh your third favorite movie of 2023 
no uh, for sure i i will say i'll i'll be posting i don't i'm not sure when you'll be posting this episode of the podcast but next week the week of christmas i guess you could say probably near the end of the week um, in between Christmas and New Year's, I'll be posting on my website and probably on the Word as well my my top ten favorite movies of the year. Um, so definitely look out for that. They'll have you know kind of a full write up uh, with that. But uh, spoilers ahead, I guess number three. I'm actually going to put um, John Wick Chapter Four at number three. It was one of the just one of the coolest movie going experiences I guess I had of the year. Um, I had high hopes going in for it because the the series as a whole um just keeps getting better with each new installment and i really loved the third one uh, i feel like i'm in the minority on that one because i feel like a lot of people would rate the the first or second above the third but i thought the third was just leaps and bounds ahead of the first two and and so and then you know there was the massive runtime and kind of the the word on the street being that this might be keanu's last one so there was a lot of hype and anticipation for this one and it just like it lived up to everything you could have wanted from it. And, um, you know, I, you know, people talk about, you know, you mentioned the Oscar episode and everything and, um, people, you know, constantly going on about Oscars for, for stunts and for stunt people, sorry. And so, uh, and like, man, if they, if they have one or ever create one, you know, John Wick for is the kind of movie that, that, that would like sweep that kind of category uh, it's just, it's just, it, you know, in, I know the superhero movies are kind of on the decline and everything as far as their relevance in pop culture goes. And, and it, it's kind of, you kind of see why when you watch John Wick for just, you know, the practicality of it all, the, um, like the actual location usage, it's just, it's nonstop. There's, you know, it's the story isn't anything fresh or new necessarily but the execution is is so high level and so well done and it's just i mean it's nearly three hours long i think and it is just i think i've watched it twice at home you know or it's one of those movies too where um you can just put it on to watch certain sequences that kind of thing so it's it's definitely one that i'll revisit again and again and or show people like to convince them to watch the series i'll show them clips from the fourth one probably out of all of them um and so it's just and rewatchability is a huge factor for me when it comes to like making my favorites list of the year or even best list but john wick four did a lot of things but as good as any movie could do them this year so i i, I know it might sound crazy to have that kind of big blockbuster action movie that high on a on a favorites list but um yeah i gotta put john wick four in the top three for for this year i don't think it's crazy it's it's one that uh, i think a lot of people have high on their list i mean you are the guy who picked the mitchells versus the machine as you're <laughs> not, not too long ago yeah hey love that movie certainly not as cool as that john wick four is streaming on the stars app i don't know why anybody would have that uh but the <laughs> Go ahead and watch it on there. If not, you'll have to rent it from like Apple or uh, Amazon Prime Video or wherever you rent movies. Uh, and and hopefully it'll be on a uh, more common streamer soon enough if, if you watch your movies that way. All right. What do you have at number two this year? Um, speaking of streamers and major streamers, actually, I don't know if, if Apple's streaming service is necessarily major, but, you know, Apple, Apple getting in on the big, you know, big major releases this year. Uh, was kind of a story and 
the fact they gave Martin Scorsese just kind of a, a blank check to do what he wanted and, uh, uh, and, and, and he was able to produce something like this, which was kind of unheard of, like a nearly four hour movie in theaters um, with big stars, um, an original story. It's obviously an adaptation of a very popular book, of a very devastating book. But um, yeah, my number two and number one are very predictable. Uh, but my number two is Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's crazy that um, Martin Scorsese is however old he is, well into his 80s, and is still making movies at this kind of level. Uh, but it it's just uh, I I don't know I I I went and saw this twice in theaters so I've I've dedicated you know seven plus hours of my life to this movie this year and um, uh, the pacing of it's incredible incredible Thelma uh, I don't want to uh, misspeak on the editor's name but it's his longtime editor that he's been working with and not to get ahead of myself and speak about, you know, the acting categories. Uh, but I probably wouldn't have mentioned this one because I've mentioned the film, but it, yeah, Lily Gladstone is, is kind of the front runner for best actress. So good in this. Have you had a chance to see this yet? I have not. Uh, uh, I was kind of hoping that they would put it on since I do subscribe to Apple TV. I was hoping that they would, you know, put it on so I can watch it without having to pay extra for it. And then I was going to watch it in eight-minute increments, uh, uh, Quibi style. Uh, oh, man. But I haven't been able to do that yet. And I wanted to point out that uh, Thelma's uh, Shoemaker is the, or Mocker, I, I forget how she pronounces it, is the editor. Uh, she has been, really, for uh, 50 years for Martin Scorsese. So I feel like uh, uh, they're basically uh, uh, ride or die together as far as movie making. Yeah, okay. But, yeah, uh I will Killers of the Flower Moon eventually. I know you can rent it now for like twenty bucks, uh, but 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 yeah, I, I know eventually it's going to be uh, free. Basically, if we already subscribe to that app, so I'm kind of waiting for that point. Um, but just to go into like going into it, knowing how you know how long it was and everything, um, I was I was really shocked at how well paced it was and and how the the length didn't really affect me. Like I didn't get up and go to the bathroom once during either of my screenings um I, I never like i didn't you know buy a large coke or anything either but i never felt compelled or the need to like get up or you know change the pace or anything real quick uh just because i was you know so engaged in it the whole time and gladstone's going to be the big acting winner out of this but just again the scale of it that that scorsese can still control something like this and and keep a through line with it as strongly as he does. Um, you know, it, th there's so many facets to it that, uh, it, you know, we could talk about the movie for probably as long as the movie is and, and still not do justice to, to everything that, that he's working with thematically in there. Um, and usually uh, one of the kind of like signifiers to me that let me know how compelling the material was and how compelling Scorsese's vision and version of it was was that I typically, if I'm going to read the source material for something, I try to do it before I go see the movie because once I see the movie, it's hard for me to kind of go back and retread that same material in a longer form. Um, like this, watching this movie made me want to go read the book and, and kind of see how it was reinterpreted for the screen because I know there's some variations between the kind of the focus of the book and then how it was kind of reshaped um, for the movie, but it's, yeah, it's just, I think time will only, only 
you know, make this be held in an even higher esteem than it already is. And, um, yeah, I just think it's a mistake for anyone, you know, who goes to the movies frequently or sees, you know, a majority of the major releases every year for them to not have this on their list. Cause it's just, I mean, it's a monumental work from what is probably the greatest living filmmaker, you know, currently. So cliche and easy of a pick as it is, it, it still deserves to be there. The thing about Killers of the Flower Moon is that it's one of those that I, it could win more Oscars than any other film of the year from what I've heard, but it could also be Scorsese's The Irishman where it gets a double digit nominations and somehow doesn't win any. Now, you mentioned Gladstone uh, being the most likely acting win, but I, I hear a lot of people talking about how Emma Stone's going to win it for poor things and Christopher Nolan and Scorsese seem to be head to head in the director category and uh even though killers is probably the front runner for best picture there's a a handful of films that that could easily take it yeah it's funny you you mentioned that because i mean that serves as a segue really because my number one movie of the year is is oppenheimer again i i'm super predictable i know but literally i think this is um and I, i i really think it's no one's year i think this is the project um, where everything kind of coalesced both like for his skill set, what he does, um, like what he does meshed with the kind of material this is. I think it kind of met in the middle to like perfectly satisfy what the Oscars want to award him for. Um, and I, I, I think picture and director are his to lose. Um, and Cillian Murphy too, or Killian Murphy, I think he, I really think he has a shot at, at um, best actor. I mean, he'll definitely get a nomination, but I really think he's got kind of the best shot to win. I know Paul Giamatti is kind of giving him a run for his money and um, Bradley Cooper and Maestro and everything, but we'll kind of see how that film's received now that it's on Netflix. Best actor is going to be a big toss up. You can throw Jeffrey Wright in there as well. Oh yes. Very true. Very true. Um, so yeah, it's it, it. Who knows? But I, I kind of think it's Nolan's year to to win, and um, and 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 it would honestly be justified. Like, because uh, you know, I said it's kind of a great meeting of what he does and how he tells stories and his kind of style and filmmaking fashion and and kind of the way he approaches story works so well for this material. But um, but it's true, like. I never would have thought a three hour movie about the guy who created the atomic bomb and his kind of internal conflict and, um, you know, his dwelling on, you know, innovation versus morality and all that kind of stuff would, would be as, um, not just entertaining as it is. I, well, I guess I, I, I knew it would be compelling. I didn't really expect it to be as entertaining as it, as it turned out to be. And, um, it's certainly, you know, it's heavy, it's heavy. It's not when you walk out of the theater and they're just like, man, what a great movie going experience. It's, it definitely hits you in a very specific way. You sit with it for a while. Um, I, I'm going to sound like a, you know, like a psycho because opening night of this, I went and saw it at, at five o'clock and, you know, initially saw it on, you know, on the IMAX screen and everything. And it was great. The sound was amazing. You know, the um it was shot on imax cameras the majority of the footage was so on on that screen it just the picture is so clean and so crisp and it's you just really feel the scale of it and the um 
and what he was trying to accomplish. Like you can see it all on screen. Um, but it was so much to take in story-wise and thematically. And there's a lot of time jumps and different, uh, different timelines happening at once to kind of, again, build to this, this, um, breaking point, this climax. And, uh, and so I, I immediately turned around and saw it again, uh, that same night, like six hours of Oppenheimer first night. And, uh, it just blew me away. Like, that's a terrible pun. Uh, I shouldn't have said that. I apologize. Um, but like, I was just, I was bowled over by it. It, it completely just, uh, I couldn't believe how well it worked. Uh, I did go see it again one more time in theaters and, um, again, the pacing's incredible, especially for a three hour movie. Long movies are probably, that's crazy. I didn't realize till just now that my top three movies are all at least like near three hours at three hours or over three hours. So I don't know what's wrong with me. Maybe I'm crazy and maybe people would be like, I'm not watching any of those based on the length alone, but let's do your three favorite uh, acting performances of the year. And uh, uh, they, they can be from movies that, that we've talked about already, or if you have uh, performances that stood out to you from from other movies uh uh you can go that route as well uh so let's start with number three and work our way to the top uh yeah i'll try to pull some from uh from movies i haven't already mentioned um because obviously like i said uh killian murphy and oppenheimer paul giamatti and the holdovers lily gladstone and killers of the flower moon we mentioned those um Talk but to uh, sorry Giam- we didn't actually talk a whole lot. You mentioned Paul Giamatti because he's going to be one of the front runners maybe for best actor, but we didn't really talk about him in The Holdover. So uh, it doesn't have to be one of your three, but The Holdovers was actually a movie that I did see this year. And, oh, I, and, it, I, and I, I saw so few movies that I, I didn't even really think I'd, I'd bring any of them up. But of, of the ones I did watch, The Holdovers was probably my favorite of the year. And, and I think that not only Paul Giamatti, but Divine Joy Randolph is probably going to get a supporting actress nomination. It may even be the front runner at this point. Yeah. And Dessa, who has never been in a film before in his life, they're all perfect together. Yeah. I mean, The Holdovers is absolutely in my top 10 of the year. Um, it really kind of took me by surprise because um, I'm, I'm, you know, like I'm kind of moderate when it comes to Alexander Payne. Um, I, I, I've found myself. Uh, at, I, I haven't seen all of his movies and I haven't even seen sideways, which is probably considered his best movie, but descendants, Nebraska and the holdovers, they're all among my favorite movies of the last uh, decade plus. So I think that I'm qu- quite a big fan of his. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of hit or miss, um, uh, but I always, you know, enjoy um, what he's going for, regardless of if he succeeds or not. And, um, but this one was interesting because it did kind of seem like a back to basics thing after downsizing, which was a real big swing. But, um, um, you know, the age we are, I didn't expect, you know, kind of a throwback to um, a small scale character drama set in the 70s to really connect with me as far as, you know, just like the nostalgic points or aspects of it. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. Those, I mean, we could stop it at the holdovers as far as doing three of the three of the yeah. best of the year, like you said. Um, and Giamatti, like, is is the the ringleader of this. Uh, yeah, Divine Joy Randolph. She has. There's one scene in the in there that just absolutely killed me. So good. So her whole arc is is great. I wish there was more of her in it, but also 
what we do get is so good it probably makes it all the more special and then yeah sessa is just like the the dynamic between him and giamatti's character is uh is great yeah i couldn't believe he hadn't been anything previously because he just comes off so naturally and uh the character seems so innate to you know to to the performance it was just kind of like oh wow that's that is crazy because it's something like that is harder to pull off than than it it maybe looks on the screen and everything but uh yeah no um holdovers is absolutely in my top 10 i was really uh it really surprised me. It, it's one of those movies. I think it is like two hours and twenty, two yeah, two twenty, and and it probably could have stood to lose fifteen minutes or so. But um, yeah. just the writing in that, um, Giamatti, like every line of dialogue he says, it could be considered just like prickly and pretentious and and stuff. But the way he delivers it, it's so dry and and his sarcasm so sharp. Like I was. Um, I, I wrote down a few of them just to, to like put it in the bank to say for later in case I needed a good insult. They were so good. Um, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I still think and kind of hope that Killian Murphy is, is the front runner, but, um, I wouldn't be surprised if Giamatti makes a run for it, especially with the, you know, kind of the repairing with pain and everything after sideways and it being so long since sideways and all that, and all those kind of extraneous factors playing into it. But, um, but no, yeah, uh, Paul Giamatti would definitely be on that that short list of like some of my one of my favorite performances of the year, along with with uh, Randolph and Sessa, because that that trio. I mean, it's about them and it's about these kind of uh, you know uh, people you wouldn't expect to like find a connection with one another, kind of stranded together over this holiday break, and and the the bonds they make and and how it carries over into like when the real world gets going again and everything. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just, it, it's obviously well done, but it was just uh, so much more impactful than I expected it to be given uh, my non-connection to that time period and uh, the, snal- the nostalgia for that period. Well, why don't we just go ahead and give the, the trio from number three on your list. And then, and then uh, that way we don't have to uh, pick and choose a favorite of the, so, uh, so what do you got next out of uh, favorite performances of the year? Um, I feel like I have to say Ryan Gosling and Barbie. Okay. Uh, yeah. Just because, like, uh, I mean, I would love it. I would absolutely love it if he won an Oscar for playing Ken. I think that would be great. But literally every I, – I, and, like, I don't want to take away anything from – Margot Robbie's performance because I think what she had to do in that movie and what she had to figure out as far as how to play that kind of character and what that character like meant and what or that it means so many different things to so many different people in the audience who would be watching the movie and that she was able to somehow kind of find a perspective for that character from which to play it like is is very cool and and very and I, I love everything she does but like um like it's hard to you know and it's hard to say like in a barbie movie which is you know it has the feminist empowerment themes to it that run so strong but it's you know and and i say that but it's really it's really about it's really well balanced in its messaging and and its ideas and everything and i'm i'm glad more people like gave it a shot and took that away from it than 
I expected them to. I thought it would just kind of be reduced to a, 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 a simpler idea, you know, especially on the internet and everything. Um, so I, had, I had faith in, in Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. So, so that's why I didn't think it turned into something that, uh, Oh, I, I didn't, I'm not surprised it turned out for what it was and, and not something like just completely stupid. Yeah. I mean, cause it, it very easily could have just turned into a, you know, a, a, a men bashing session. Uh, but it's, it's definitely a lot more than that. And the fact they give Gosling as Ken as much to do as he, as he gets and that he is even like afforded this opportunity to kind of steal the show like I mean, he has more musical numbers than than anyone else, and uh, it's just it's ridiculous. But it's so it's so good, and it's so memorable, and so like legitimately funny. And um, I feel like you know you mentioned Barbie earlier, and so I was trying to like kind of diversify what we were talking about. And there are other, oh, like, trust me. We already recorded a segment. We're, we're recording multiple segments for our best of pop culture. We did an entire segment that's probably going to lead off the uh, the episode about Barbie because uh, not only did I enjoy it, but uh, a frequent contributor of the podcast, Tyler Glover, it was his favorite movie of the year, and it was my wife April, who's always on the podcast with us. It was her favorite movie of the year. So, so there's going to be plenty of Barbie Barbie okay. talk on the episode. Perfect. Yeah. No. I mean, like, it, it was funny because we saw um, my wife and I saw a matchbox 20 at the end of June in concert, <laughs> not knowing, you know, a couple weeks later, you know, in Barbie, it would become a whole thing. And so that just, I mean, maybe the biggest laugh in the theater I've had this year. Uh, so it was just, it, it was, it was really, really funny. And just, I, I, I don't know, like he's just one of those guys like is just, inherently effortlessly cool and you just like you're just like but on top of like being handsome and and um charismatic and all that you kind of just feel like he gets it in a meta kind of way oh yeah and uh, the way he played it in that fashion just uh yeah no i thought it was great and um have to have to obviously mention that um so so here's the thing you're everything you've said about ryan gosling playing kent is absolutely correct he <laughs> perfect if he were to win an oscar i would have no issue with that but i guess my issue is with (coughs) maybe the media even though that's what we're doing here uh, (laughs) that margot robbie and and you kind of touched on this margot robbie is perfect in barbie in my opinion yeah but but in a more meaningful way than and Ryan Gosling is perfect as Ken. And I think a lot of people talking so much about Gosling's performance as Ken kind of maybe backfired a little bit on what the message of, of Barbie is and how terrific Margot Robbie is. Because I, I think Margot Robbie, I'm not even sure at this point she's going to get a nomination for Best Actress. But I think, and I don't think she would win in a million years, but man, if she's not nominated, that's going to be a crime because as much as I liked Gosling, that was the, the, the performance of the movie for me was Margot Robbie. Yeah. I mean, it, it, and it's, the thing is, is like Gosling's is obviously the showier role. He gets those bigger musical moments. It's the funnier role. Whereas Robbie has to, you know, 
carry the emotional weight of the movie and, and carry the main arc of it and everything. And she does it again with ease, um, which is, you know, when you do it with ease, it, you, you know, it looks easy and it's, it's not. Yeah. I think a lot more went into it than people really consider, even when they like say, Oh, I really liked it. It was really good. I liked what it was, you know, what it had to say and everything, but you know, it really doesn't take it. There's, there's a lot more to take into consideration as far as um, crafting something to have that kind of effect on people. And uh, yeah, it's, it'll, it's, it's, it's understated and it will go without the recognition it probably deserves. Um, but no, I, yeah, I, I completely understand what you're saying. And, and uh, that's why, yeah, that's exactly why I said the, the, you know, what I said about it and wanted to make sure her, um, you know, her performance, her contribution was, was acknowledged as well. But, uh, but yeah, it's Ken is just the, it, it is the showier, funnier role. And so it's going to be the one people flock to. So, uh, you know, and I don't know, I guess I, what we're really saying is just like everything about, you know, what they were going for there and the intent they, they had in making it, they really pulled it off well because, um, not only was it just, you know, like a huge event in the summer, but like a really good movie as well. What's number one on your performances of the uh, best performance of the year? Well, I don't know if it's number one, but um, I do, uh, you know, for the sake of this exercise, we can say it is. Um, but what I did, I wanted to call out one that is on my top 10 list. Is, is Wood um, Murphy number one for you? Do what? Would, would Murphy from Oppenheimer be number one for you? Yeah. Um, as far as, as far as, um, actor Murphy would probably be number one. Um, but actually for number one, if we were talking actress, um, uh, uh, this would be my number one vote as far as actress is concerned. Uh, it's one I haven't seen on a lot of ballots and probably because it came out really early in the year. Um, it was at Sundance this year. I don't even know when the actual like theatrical release for it was, or if it got one, um, but it's it's a movie called um, the Starling Girl. Um, okay. It stars Eliza Scanlon and um, Bill Pullman's son, Lewis. Lewis, uh, yeah. And he was in Top Gun Maverick, and he's been in a couple other things. Um, I think the uh, first little bit of a of a mini series we've been watching called Lessons in Chemistry. He's really good in that. Yeah, it, he's great in this. Um, but uh, uh, Jimmy Simpson's also in it. But um, but yeah, Eliza Scanlon. Um, is the star of it is the main character of it. And she's been in, um, a couple things. I think she like her biggest thing, I think was that, uh, Oh gosh, what was it called? It was that like HBO show with Amy Adams. Uh, and I, and she was in little women with, you know, uh, speaking of Greta Gerwig, she was in, uh, Greta Gerwig's little women. But, um, anyway, she is, yeah, she is the, the star of this movie. And, um, I don't know if it's just cause, you know, we're in the South, we're in the Bible belt or whatever, but, uh, it's, uh, she plays this girl who is like, uh, daughter of very strict fundamentalist Christians. And, um, she is, you know, very repressed as far as her emotions, desires, um, is very, uh, restricted as far as the role she's supposed to play, you know, expectations are her to fill, (coughs) you know, she's like 17 or something in the movie. And, uh, 
but you know, her parents are already kind of scouting her for who she'll marry and things like that. And it's, you know, just very much of that, like, I, I, you know, I don't even know how to say it, but it's, you know, one of those, I don't know. Uh, It's hard to describe. I haven't written a lot about this one yet, so I don't have like for it, but I really liked it. Um, It it really surprised me. It's a first time feature from this director, a female director called uh, named uh, Laurel Parmet and um, really, really impressive for a first feature, especially in the tone she captures, the tension she captures. And um, basically Scanlon's character has, um starts a relationship with uh, with like the youth pastor who is married who is played by Lewis Pullman and um so it's kind of her like awakening if you will and kind of realizing there's more not only more to um the people around her you know than she than she expects but more to the world in general and uh it, it's it's you know got a lot of a lot of the themes about faith and um, I, I can't even like wrap my head around it right now. Cause it's been a couple months since I've seen it and I need to, I, I do need to like write a little bit more about it to process it. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's probably the most underseen one on my list or the little, the, the, you know, the, um, the one that has been seen by the least amount of people. It is streaming <laughs> on Showtime right now, which oh, I okay. think, uh, is probably connected with, with Paramount plus somehow, if you have like the extra subscription or whatever. Um, but it's it's just really well done, and uh, and she's she's really really good in it because it's 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 very uh, it's it's one of those ones where you kind of have to walk a tough line of, um, you know, like being the hero of the story, but also like making regrettable decisions or making guessing at whether or not you're making the right decision or not, and. Uh, <clears throat> you obviously want to forgive this character because she's young and kind of naive and everything. But, uh, but yeah, it's a really like inner, inner turmoil kind of, but very complicated, like psychological state that she's going through and in, in trying to figure out who she is and where she belongs, if she wants to belong to this, um, because her parents are, you know, uh, emphasizing that lifestyle on her so much. Um, but yeah, it, it was, distributed by Bleecker street. They didn't really promote it, but um, it's, it's in my top 10 of the year. And I, I it's definitely well worth seeking out. Well, yeah. And you never have to apologize by uh, picking a something for, for this, that, that lot of us. there's two points to list uh, one uh, to argue and two to help people find stuff that they haven't yet seen. So I think that's a great pick. Uh, I'm going to uh, go ahead and wrap us up right now. Cause my phone could literally die at any moment. <laughs> I want to thank you, Philip, for joining us again. I want to remind the listeners, check out reviewsfromabed.com uh, for all of Philip's uh, reviews. Uh, and I, I can't wait to see that. It may be out uh, by the time this uh, is published. It sounds like we're planning on to publish your list and, and this podcast around the same time. So uh, either awesome. look for his top 10 list on reviewsfromabed.com or uh, go ahead and check it out now if it's already up on the website. Uh, so thanks again, Philip, for, for uh, joining us tonight. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Sorry for coughing so frequently. I do apologize. It's just that time of the year, but um, no, seriously, thank you for having me and and can't wait to do it again. Of course. And uh, hopefully we'll get you on in a a few months for the Oscars. 
Once again, I want to thank everybody who contributed to the Word on Pop Culture podcast in 2023. And most importantly, thank you to anyone who has listened, liked, and reviewed the podcast. We look forward to seeing you again for Season 6 of the Word on Pop Culture podcast in January.